tonight. We are beginning our introduction to the um, book of Amos. Uh, as we move through the uh, minor prophets, uh, there are incredible men that God called and used. And as we said in the beginning, uh, the aspect to minor has nothing to do with their lesser importance, but it's simply a category that's given them due to the uh, shorter books, but that's not even uh, true to itself as we see some of the uh, major prophets are smaller than some of the minor prophets. But um, we begin our introduction. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to the book of Amos. And um, Amos, the prophet, is our next minor prophet here. And he's a man of the country, um, as we will see, and um, a very um, common man, a simple man, uh, when God called him, one who was just a laborer to an extent, as we'll see. And uh, we will see not only that, but um, he was not familiar with the area that he was sending him to in terms of the type of living, the exclusiveness, the luxury, and all that. Um, as we will uh, note that he was uh, both a fruit picker and a sheep breeder. And so, as I said this morning, Amos was sort of like a, a hick uh, from the country being sent to the city. And um, therefore, Amos was not very popular, not only by who he was and where he came from, but also his message. His message was uh, the proclamation of repentance. And though he was um, uh, popular in heaven, he wasn't popular on earth. Though he was rejected by the earth, he was fully accepted in heaven as the one who sent him. And so he announced social injustice and spiritual apostasy um, and judgment in view of the refusal to repent. And I made a note this morning that you don't want to mistake in the um, social injustice that Amos is mentioning here and confuse it with the um, social injustice of our day that is being pushed by, uh, by politicians uh, through um, um, this liberation theology that came prior to a well-known uh, aspect of theology when Obama was um, elected because of his uh, pastor, Reverend Wrong. And um, uh, the same kind of liberation theology was used by the Sandinistas down in South America, Central America. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a theology that, is, that hijacks the Bible and taints it with, with political uh, agendas and with race. And uh, certainly you would never get that from the Bible, the Old Testament or the New Testament. But uh, you can twist the scriptures to make them say whatever you want out of context. And you can build your own sandcastles, but the only thing with sandcastles, sooner or later, they just kind of wash away if a wave hits them hard enough. And so, um, the prophet Amos, um, one of the twelve of these minor prophets, and there are six minor prophets prior to the captivity of the northern kingdom uh, by Assyria, which went in 722, as we've noted. You have Obadiah, Joel, uh, Jonah, and Amos, and uh, Hosea, and then Micah. And uh, they, they, they follow in chronological order that way. And then there are three minor prophets prior to the captivity of the southern kingdom by Babylon. Um, that goes from 606 to 586. 
you have Nahum, Sephaniah, and Habakkuk. And then there are three minor prophets after the return, uh, captivity of Babylon from 536 to 425 BC. You have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi is the last one, about 430. Then you have 400 years of silence between Malachi and the New Testament when John the Baptist opens up and preaches, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. By the way, that's the message that the Old Testament closes with, with Malachi when we get there. Now the 12 minor prophets are gathered by a group, uh, by a person called Ezra A.E., the great synagogue, around 475 B.C., and it's called uh, the Book of the Twelve. And um, our Bible distinguishes, again, major and minor, but uh, again, it's not an exclusive or a very correct um, distinction between them, because as I said, some of the um, minor prophets are larger. Zechariah has 14 chapters. Um, Daniel um, has 12. And so it's, not, it's true to, a, to an extent, but not completely. But never think of them as, um, as being inferior compared to the major prophets. The New Testament tells us that all scripture is given by God. Um, Theopneusto, meaning God breathed. And it's profitable for doctrine, correction, and instruction that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And then uh, 2 Peter, or 1 Timothy, and 2 Peter 1, um, 19 through 21 says that the men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin, but they were carried along by the Spirit of God. So the words they spoke were not their own, but that which God gave. And so they were merely instruments and vessels. And that's why we believe that the Bible is God's inerrant and infallible word in the original autographs. What we possess is probably uh, has minor changes, maybe 99.9. You have the authentic text here. And it's very, very clear. And so there are people who will attack the inspiration of Scripture and say, well, it, it, it contains the Word of God. That's what the neo-Orthodox teach. And it came into Fuller Seminary. And that was taught through church growth, different things. But this is not, this does not contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God, whether you believe it is or, or it isn't. And if you say that it becomes the Word of God only when you read it, then it, it just doesn't go along with Scripture. And so... Um, Every one of these prophets, major or minor, they are in the major leagues. And, uh, and God used them to give his revelation. If it wasn't for them, then there's no way we could know anything about God. God tells us all about creation, about the fall, about the flood, uh, about the call of Abraham. Um, the first 11, 12 chapters are the most important. If you do away with those, then you can destroy the whole Bible. There's really nothing that's introduced new after those 11 to 12 chapters. Everything else is just enlarged and more specific, but everything is there. We did our series on, on Genesis, and it's very important as a foundation. That's why it's constantly attacked all the time. Now, the prophet Amos is the first thing we want to look at, and he is a man called a prophet because God calls him. He's not of the priestly line. Now, Ezekiel was priestly, but he had never got to be a priest. God called him to be a prophet. <laughs> But yet he took him through a virtual reality tour when he was over in, in, um, in Babylon. And he took him over to Jerusalem. Okay? And God does what he wills. And, and also, he, he wasn't of the prophetic order. He didn't go to the school of the prophets. And, but he was just a common person. But you have the words such as in the first verse, which uh, he saw concerning Israel. Speaking about visions, he's going to have six. We're going to see in chapter eight, uh, um, 7, 8, and 9 that we'll look at. 
And um, there's also phrases for, for thus saith the Lord in chapter 1, verse 3, 6, and 9. Um, we can go to chapter 2, verse 1 and 4. Um, the, the, also the phrases, hear the word of the Lord. And you find these in many other prophets. Um, chapter 3, verse 1, 4, 1, 5, 1, um, 8, 4. And the Lord has shown me. So these are things that God is revealing. Now, none of us, none of us receive special revelation the way these guys did. God doesn't give you some new revelation to add in the Bible. Okay? God can speak to you personally, but he doesn't give you new revelation. We don't add the book of Xavier. It's just that it's not going to happen. Okay? And you have to be careful because some people go around, especially today, they have the gift of being a prophet and they want to speak as prophets and they want you to believe that they're prophets and they want you to obey them as prophets. It's time to go take a walk. There's no prophets today, okay? Um, the prophets were called to um, to call the people of God to repent. Everybody's called to do that. Everybody should do that. When we see somebody who's walked with God and walked away or is living in sin, out of love, we should be calling them back. Amos was a sheep breeder from Tekoa. Again, there in verse 1, it tells us that it's believed to be a special breed of sheep that had um, great abundance of fleas. Um, he later on speaks in chapter 3, verse 12, of the language of a shepherd that was responsible for the sheep. And if a bear or a lion would grab it, and if there was any re- uh, remainder of it, some remnant, a, a little hoof, a little ear, he would present it to the owner, and then the owner would absolve him. He wouldn't accuse him of uh, robbing it or selling it or eating it. Uh, but he truly was faithful uh, to defend them, and he couldn't do anything about it, and he, he gives the evidence. Um, he's also a man, because the shepherd, he's outdoors. He speaks about God giving rain, about the Pleiades, uh, about Orion in chapter 5, verse 8. Um, as you can uh, imagine, spending all the nights out there. Some of you have been to Israel with us, and we go to the shepherd's field outside of Bethlehem there, and uh, overlooking the hillside there, and, and uh, shepherds are all around there and everything. Now, Amos was also um, not only a, a sheep breeder, but he was a, a, a fruit picker, uh, tender sycamore. In chapter 7, verse 14, he tells us that. And this is uh, said to be um, fruit for the poor, uh, which they ate, and you'd have to pinch it to mature before you could eat it. And um, when the priests and the prophets... Um, had become corrupt, this is what happened. God called common people. And, and he made them their mouthpiece. He made them their instrument to confront and to approach. And, and now it wasn't a very, um, you couldn't get any life insurance as a prophet. Um, they stoned the prophets. Um, they didn't welcome them. They didn't throw great feasts. Now they did for the false prophets, but not for the true prophets. Um, and so, but these men were very courageous and obedient to God. Uh, again, Amos is the fourth of the twelve in the order of chronology. Yet in our English Bible, um, he is um, the third. Um, you have Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, and then Amos. Amos means burden or burden bearer. And certainly um, bearing the burden of, uh, of the call of God, whatever it may be, whether it be to confront somebody, whether it be to be obedient to God or to stand for righteousness in a corrupt culture or nation or even within a marriage or within a, a family. Um, those are heavy burdens. But again, if God calls us, he enables us. And so his, his yoke and, and burden is light. Uh, so we depend upon him. We don't trust in the arm of flesh, but we trust in him uh, for what he calls us to do. Uh, Amos, again, is from the city of Tekoa. Um, 
uh, just six miles south of Bethlehem towards the Dead Sea and uh, ten miles from Jerusalem. And um, it, it's, a, it's a deserted place out there. It's, uh, you get down there by the Dead Sea. It's the lowest part in the earth. It's the closest place to hell. It gets about 115 in the summer over there. Um, it, it's just um, um, it's a real high, dry area. Um, it was uh, on a hill about 2,700 feet high overlooking the wilderness of, of Judah. And uh, the city was a city of defense in the time of Jeroboam in Second Chronicles 11.6. And many believe that the very um, name is um, a derivative from the trumpet or the sounding of an alarm. Um, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 6.1, blow the trumpet in Tekoa. And that brings us to just the, the watchman that Ezekiel speaks about. That uh, he, he's there to protect the people. An alarm is sounded out to warn. And, and truly, um, uh, here Amos was that faithful uh, uh, country bumpkin, if you will. <laughs> um, Beverly Hill Billy. Going to this northern area where there's the latest of fashions. There's ivory beds. There's gold goblets. There's drinking of every kind. You've got all the... Um, all the, uh, the uh, working girls out in the corners, and you've got everything. And, uh, and he, you know, he's not used to this and all that. And yet God calls him and sends him um, to speak authoritative to these people. And you can imagine when you get around circles like that, and they think they know better, and they think they have the clout, they think they have the money, and they think they have the power. Um, they're not very kind. They're not very friendly. They're not very merciful, and uh, they will confront um, Amos, as we'll see later on. Also, um, the woman that Joab had got to come to confront David about his unwillingness to reconcile his son Absalom came from the city of Tekoa. Um, uh, the wise woman at Tekoa there in Second Samuel 14. Now, the man Adam was, uh, or Amos here, was called by God then to be his vessel, his, his, his mouthpiece. Um, but, but so are you, uh, so am I. The minute you're born again, um, God wants to use you. And uh, whether it be um, to your family again, to whatever it is that you would give that witness of Jesus Christ and what he's done in your life. Um, um, Amos was a, a, a seer, uh, as verse uh, 1 says, and also in chapter 7, verse 2, Amaziah uh, calls him a seer and tells him not to prophesy in the royal uh, palace there of the north in 714. Um, but yet, um, Amos had no training, no formal training. Remember the school of the prophets with Elijah and Elisha. In fact, the Lord told him um, that he, from following the flock, he was to go and to prophesy against Israel. And, uh, and he was not to hold back, Amos 7, 15. Uh, again, the, um, the obedience to God, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a difficulty in obedience at time or a difficulty through the obedience. Um, it's, it's going forth in what God has directed and then trusting God to do that. We have the prophet Isaiah, Jeremiah again. Uh, many of them, the things that they went through. Um, he saw six visions in chapter 7 to 9, which God would give. And again, visions is when you're awake. A dream is while you're asleep. 
And the man Amos was, was called, as we're familiar with Bethel, through Hosea, uh, the house of God. All of this is um, the idolatrous center of the northern kingdom, Bethel. And there's also Dan, the two cities. And yet, um, um, as these centers of idolatry, um, say 760 B.C. for uh, this period of time, an increment in there. But if you just put 764 Amos, that'd be okay. And Jeroboam had set up that calf worship, and as we've spoken about it before, and um, this was after the division of the kingdom of Solomon. And again, he could have had, Jeroboam the first could have had a thriving nation. God, through the prophet Ahijah, said, listen, I'm going to give you ten pieces, and if you obey me, if you're faithful, I will make your house like the house of David. Yet he feared the people that they would go to Jerusalem on the feast days that had to go three times a year. And they would give allegiance to David and he would lose his kingdom. He didn't listen to the prophet of God. God said, I will make your house like the house of David. So we will never know how God would have done it. We know he would have. So we only see and know... Well, how God did it through the disobedience of Jeroboam. Okay? And so, shame on him. He ripped us off. Um, the earthquake is mentioned here. Zechariah 14.5 mentions the earthquake also. So it was a very prominent, well-known earthquake. So he dates um, his prophecy by uh, kings and by an event that happened. In uh, Bethel, again, the very place where uh, Jacob, as he was fleeing from his brother, uh, saw the ladder from heaven to the earth and angels descending. And in Genesis 28:17, and he named it the house of God, Bethel. Now, we've already seen with Hosea that it's called Beth-Avon, the house of wickedness. And, and always remember, when God establishes uh, godly places, godly locations, sanctuaries of place of God's people, it's always... The evil or the heathen or the atheist that infiltrates and corrupts it and takes it over. Okay? They don't create things. They take things over. That's the way it is. Um, Bethel, again, is mentioned in Scripture more than any other city, as we said, except for Jerusalem. Very key cities, uh, places where God had met the patriarchs, promises he had given and the man Amos has uh, divided his book into three divisions. In uh, chapter 1 and 2, you have the judgment of the nations. You have eight burdens. We may do a message on that. Um, then you have chapter 3 through 6, the judgment of Israel. Uh, you have three sermons. And then you have chapter 7 through 9, the judgment will lead to Israel's restoration. And you have six visions. And that's how he divides it. The prophet Amos was not received with very open arms because he was denouncing their sin, denouncing their lifestyle. And, uh, and, and, and darkness doesn't like that. Uh, you remember being in the world? And, uh, you know, parties don't get started in the world until maybe 10, 11, real good ones, you know, and 12, you know. And you walk in and if you turn the light on, you go, hey, 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 we don't turn the light off. You love darkness. Or you walk into the party and you, because you came out where there was light, you can, you can barely see. But then after five minutes, you darkness, hey, hey, hi, Joy. Hey, Jane, how you doing? 
You, 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 you just acclimate to the darkness. You see? And darkness hates light because it exposes the evil. All of us were there. We see the miracle of God, how he's changed our hearts and lives, never ever believing that we are beyond the same things. Never believing that I can't do the things I used to. I'm still a sinner. I have a sin nature. But he's changed my heart and he's put fear in my heart of God. We may fall short. We ask forgiveness. We confess and he forgives us. But that is the exception. It's not the rule where we live any longer. We used to live there. We don't live there anymore. That's the old man. And you've got you to starve the old man. Now, if the old man is winning a lot of this, these fights, then you're feeding him. Okay? You've got to feed the new man. And so this was um, the prophet Amos. The time in which Amos lived, again, is very important. And again, the internal evidence is the most important as you find out from the words and the things that he mentions. Um, all of the prophets spoke to specific people, to a specific time for specific things. And Amos um, was called to prophesy during the reign of Uzziah, as he said, in Jeroboam II, in the first verse. And uh, King Uzziah, um, he was a very good king, if you read in Kings, he was a great king. He reigned for 52 years, uh, 792 to 79, um, 740, 739 B.C., a popular king. And uh, But he came to a place where uh, he was good and he was popular until he didn't seek the Lord any longer. In Second Chronicles 26.5, he became very pompous, very uplifted because of the prosperity God gave him, the power, the success. It went to his head and he tried to offer incense on the altar and Azariah the high priest and eight of his fellow priests uh, confronted him and he wouldn't pay heed and God struck him with leprosy there in Second Chronicles 26, 16-23. And we have many instances like that in the Old Testament where people presume upon things that God didn't call them. We see Korah and the 250 men that opposed uh, Moses and, and Aaron. And he says, you guys, you sons of Aaron and Moses, you guys take too much on yourself. Is God only speaking through you guys? And Moses said, well, I don't know, but you know, let's ask God and um, meet me back here tomorrow. And let's just ask God to do something weird like uh, open up the earth and swallow the one he doesn't want. Is that good enough for you? Now, all those kind of scriptures, especially touching out the apple of my eye, can be used by people in the pulpit to try to intimidate people and to put a, some kind of um, uh, message of special anointing. Don't touch me. Don't criticize me. No, that's not what it's for. But certainly we want to understand that when God calls a man and if God is using a man, that we don't want to say nothing against him unless we are absolutely sure. Where there is evidence, there's witnesses. And yet today everybody flips their lip and think they can say what they want. And the majority of the time they don't know what they're talking about. It's what's called discretion, respect and decency in the fear of God. And so we want to look at the scriptures. We want to look at a person's life. And we want to make sure that that plumb line's there. And we want to be prayerful about our words and and thoughtful on how we approach things and do it all biblically. So that things are done to the honor and the glory of God. 
Because what's at stake is people's lives. And not only that, but the world is looking on, ladies and gentlemen. They have enough funky material from weird Christianity. They don't need any more. And so, um, lifted up in pride, he became a leopard the rest of his life, and his son co-reigned with him. Joash, the father of Jeroboam, uh, recaptured the border cities of Syria, had ceased in the days of power as um, Assyria crushed Damascus in around 805 B.C. Um, 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 25 gives us that. And Jeroboam II reigned over Israel uh, in his place in the northern kingdom, which at that time, the Assyrians uh, had many weak, weak kings, and um, there was no attempt to assert control all the way down over the Mediterranean. And so the northern kingdom were released from the payment of tribute for 50 years. Now remember, we read in the kings, when this, this nation conquered this nation, they would put them under tribute. You have to pay a, a, a tax every year so that they won't kill you and you know, you're subservient to them. And so, as I mentioned um, this morning and, and when we did uh, Hosea, that sometimes God's judgment comes through blessing. Because remember, this whole region of the northern kingdom has been under judgment by God. As soon as Jeroboam I corrupted and set up the two worship centers. And yet God allowed them to prosper for the last 50 years tremendously. You see, if you are not born again and God and you have money, whether you earn it yourself, it's still God giving you. God gives you the health, the ability to work, right? But if you don't have God as a priority of your life, that money will destroy you. It's bad enough when you're young and dumb and have no money. You still get in trouble. But worse is when you're old and dumber. And you have all the time and all the money. You see some of these old guys with these young chicks. Do they really believe that it's because they think they're good looking? Guys are so dumb. But that's our vanity, right? That's our sin nature. Because we don't care. Because when we're living for ourselves, all we're looking is, what am I going to get out of it? And if I have the money and the ability, I don't care. And so the bottom line is there's no respect towards God. There's no respect towards self. There's no respect towards anybody. It's all about the survival of the fittest. Now this was 170 years after the division of the kingdom. You stop and think our nation, 1776. 1976 was 200 years. 24, 34, 39. 239 years we are. We're a baby. Look how fast our nation has gone down the last seven years. Now, our nation has been going down. But it's more on lightning speed now because it's been cutting down in half every time. The first half could hardly notice it. Then the next half. Then the next half. But you know, you have a pie in half. Ah, I still have half. But then you go quarter. Ooh, then eighth. Ooh, and sixteenth. And, and you know, you keep, and pretty soon it's a sliver, right? And that's what happens with deception. 
At first, it's unnoticeable. Then it kind of speeds up, and all of a sudden, you go, shoot. And all of a sudden, it's there. But it didn't happen right there. It happened way back there. Just like when marriages break up, or adultery happens, or people abandon a woman or a man. It doesn't happen that day. It's way back there because things are dealt with in the Lord and in the Word and through prayer and through dying to self and thinking of another instead of myself. And all of a sudden one day you say, you know what? Stick in your ear. I'm leaving. I'm out of here. And how often I, I see this in Christians, Christians who have walked with God, who abandon their wives just recently married or just when the wife is pregnant or when after two or three kids, you name it. Then you have the flip side of it. You have women who are leaving their husbands. That's the greater thing that's happening right now. It's amazing. You see, our nation has so brought, been brought so low that everything has been removed. And it's all been conditioned slowly. No difference between male or female. No difference between loser or winner. No scores. No distinction between a baseball team of girls and baseball team of boys. Everything's together. So that everything is just blah. There's no distinction. There's no judgment. There's no excellence. There's no honor. There's no competition. There's no natural jealousy, envy that's healthy. We've become calloused and insensate. And our hearts have become hard and more evil than they are. But again, it's taken time. It's not overnight. Jeroboam II reigned for 41 years. And um, corruption kept going. Assyria did not become a threat till 745 B.C., uh, with the rise of Tilgat-Pneser III. And Jeroboam II restored much of the land and entered a new period uh, of the political peace and physical prosperity. But in spite of that, spiritual apostasy um, took hold of them and that brought social oppression and moral corruption. When you let go of... Um, of a fear of God or you let go of, of right and wrong and you don't even need the Bible the Bible says in Romans chapter 1 that, that by, by our conscience uh, we know what's right and wrong every society every group people know regardless of how primitive they are that to kill somebody is not right that you don't take another man's wife or husband you don't molest a child. The most primitive cultures understand this. It's natural. God has given us a conscience. Right and wrong. Jeroboam II made Bethel the royal sanctuary of the northern kingdom, as we said. He'll say that in 713. And um, uh, the people crowded these sanctuaries and brought their prosperous gifts. 
thinking that it was going to ingratiate God, but God rejected and despised them. Chapter 5, 21 through 23 says, and the priests were the ones who gained everything. The more offerings were offered, the more benefit they got. So why would they want to preach for people to stop sinning? Because the more they send, the more they offer, the more things they get, right? And it's no different today. Pastors don't want to talk about sin and repentance because it might affect the, the big tithers or the people that are behind the church, right? So they don't want to offend nobody, right? Well, that's ridiculous. Pretty soon everybody's corrupt in the church and pretty soon we're no different than what we were in the world. And it becomes just a den of thieves, like Jesus said. God help us. If we don't fear God, we're dead. Now, Amos was a contemporary with many prophets, as you know, at least a good group of them. Um, around 751 to 760, with, again, his prophecy. And so he probably knew Jonah, and we've talked about Jonah. Um, Jonah is mentioned in Second uh, Kings 14.25. is the only other place where you find him. And there he prophesied to Jeroboam II, the rotten king. That God was going to restore the territory to its original boundaries. Here's a rotten king and God is doing all these things. Gives him rain, does this. Why? He wants to turn him. Hopefully he'll return. Not that God didn't know what he was going to say. But God does all these things so that when God does judge, there is no excuse. No one can say, you didn't give me enough chance. You didn't warn me enough. No. Every person will be silenced when it comes to the judgment. So Jonah lived at a time of physical prosperity, seeming safety. And during that time, God sends him to Nineveh. And he hated the Ninevites, the Assyrians, because they would come down in the upper Galilee and make raids. And, and maybe, maybe, we don't know, but maybe some of Jonah's family was killed or taken captive and he didn't want to forgive them. You have someone like that? All of us do. We got to deal with it, don't we? You got that guy in your mind, that lady in your mind? And you say, man, if I get to heaven up there, I'm jumping off. How'd you get there? You deserve heaven? You deserve another place. It starts with age, but it's not heaven. You see... My sin always looks uglier on you. I can understand why I did it. I can even understand why God forgave me. But you? I'm not sure. Welcome to the club. We're bad news. Hmm. Isaiah began his ministry when Uzziah died. It says 740 B.C. And prophesied through four kings, another contemporary, Isaiah 6 1. This took place as Amos was closing his ministry. Isaiah and Micah were starting theirs, and without doubt they knew them, if not even Jonah. It's possible they didn't, but most likely they did. Hosea came after Amos and he saw the captivity of the northern kingdom. Again, um, the kings are given to us, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Jeroboam, and Hosea 
one one, um, the Assyrian captivity seven twenty two, Amos prophesied um, of justice. Uh, he's a prophet of justice. Where Hosea, as we said, is a, a prophet of love. He, um, he he he. God bears his heart about Israel. He loves Israel and how difficult time he has in judging her. But he's God. He's holy. He has to right. But he brings himself down to that human level where he expresses his love, his affection, his turmoil. And sometimes with us, it's very hard to confront certain people and to say certain things and to lower the, um, the boom on somebody, uh, sort of speak. Uh, not for vengeance or anything else, but because we have to. Uh, a child, a son, a daughter who is just wayward and, and they want to... Uh, um, they want us to stand behind their lifestyle, which is so contrary to God's word. And yet, you know, they want us to, to compromise this and we can't do it. There comes a time that we're patient, patient. We're giving them the benefit of the doubt. We're encouraging them. We're calling them to repentance. We're dealing with them. We're giving them one opportunity, two opportunities, so on. There comes a line that you have to draw that if they do cross it, then you have to take action. Otherwise, then you become responsible and party to their sin and their failure to honor God. And so we make decisions by God's word, objective truth, not by our emotions. If we make decisions by our emotions, we're dead people. Now, men and women are different. Women are more emotional. They make their decision by emotions. That's why women get ripped off by guys more. Have you ever heard of a guy getting ripped off sexually by a woman? Well, give me his name when you get done after the study. I don't know anybody. But women, yes. Because we know, we don't know how, why it works, we just know it works. I, I thought you loved me. And we play on emotions and we manipulate women. Now, as godly men, we don't do this. We don't play on the emotions of a woman. We don't manipulate. We don't abuse that. We're protected. We're careful about that. So when we teach our sons and we teach our daughters, we teach them truth through experience as well as objective truth from the Bible. Why it is that we shouldn't do that? Why it is that we should honor other people and God? And so they can put the two together. Amos um, provides for us key words, phrases, theological themes, and key verses that are relative to the days and the events that he's speaking about. The style of Amos, I said this morning, poetical form, it uses repetitions of words and phrases building up upon an idea and a thought reaching a climax. Uh, and, and in this book, it's repentance and judgment. Let me give you some key words. Uh, chapter 4, you have the word here, oppress, crush, needy, holiness, I appears 12 times, personal I, pronoun. Hooks, Bethel, Gilgal, transgression. Not, the word not appears five times. All key to that chapter. You see, you go through a chapter, how many times it appears, key things that turn an idea that kind of change the subject, if they're important, and you pick them out. A key phrases, uh, the Lord roars from Zion. Amos 1.1. 1, 1. For three transgressions are for four. You see it from chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to chapter uh, 2, verse 6, over and over again, eight times, okay? I will not turn away its punishment. Again, chapter 1, all the way to chapter 2, um, it's stated. So in other words, judgment is for sure. I'm done. Warning. Hear the words, or hear the word, or hear this word. Amos 3, 1, 4, 1, 5, 1, the word of God. Key phrases. 
The Lord showed me Amos 7 1, 7 4, 7 7, 8 1. This, these things were not things that Amos was making up or he had some bad pizza and, you know, and he's writing them down and smoked some um, bad mushrooms or something. And that wasn't the case. The Lord of hosts, Amos 4.13, Now you know what the Lord of hosts is, right? It's the captain of the armies of heaven. When this phrase is used, God's coming after somebody and he's never lost a war. Never. Theological themes, the omniscience of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God, the love of God, the long-suffering of God, the creatorhood of God, the omnipotence of God, the omnipresence of God, the wickedness of man, the hypocrisy of man, the depravity of man, the judgment of God on man, etc., etc. All kinds of great themes. Themes that instruct us, themes that are to, to warn us, things that are to put fear in us, godly fear. For our good, that we might live the right way, that we might pass this on to our children. Let me give you two key verses. I gave them to you this morning. Amos 3, 3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? It's a rhetorical question with one answer. No. We agree with God. He has revealed his will in his word. And we're to study and to obey him. The second one is in 5, um, 24. In... Um, 524, let me read it. I don't have it written down here. Um, He says, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Wow. Just the opposite was taking place. Key verses. This was um, the period of of Amos. Now, uh, the proclamation of Amos Uh, Let me just run through it generally. We're not going to go in real depth. The repeated phrase, uh, thus saith the Lord. Again, um, God was going to judge the nations. This is in chapter 1, chapter 2. He's going to judge the nations. This is what God is saying. This is what God is proclaiming. You see it, chapter 1 all the way to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 4 and 6. He mentions Israel along with Judah. With the heathen. Why? Because they are living just like the Gentile. So therefore he judges them along with the Gentile. You, you, you know, there's people that, that, that say, well, I'm a Christian. I accept the Lord. But they're, they're getting drunk on the weekend. They're sleeping with a girlfriend or boyfriend. And they're still getting loaded. And, you know, and, and, and they say, well, yeah, but I'm a Christian. Oh, really? Well, what's the difference between you and someone who's not a Christian? What's the difference between you now and when you weren't a Christian? There has to be a clear distinction. There's repeated phrases for three transgressions for four. Over and over again in chapter one all the way to chapter two. Talking about God's patience that he's done. He's gone as far as he can go. Um, He's not at fault when he brings judgment. He's given ample time for them to repent. And so God would hold the Gentile responsible for their sin and their sinful lifestyle. And so would God hold his people responsible. God is not a respecter of person. Righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people. Proverbs 14.34 says, Jesus gathers the judgment of the nations. That gathers the nations for judgment. Matthew 25 on how they deal with the Jew. 
So there, there's always judgment. Judgment is objective, right? It, it deals with absolute truth. Uh, for there to be judgment, there has to be an absolute truth. And there has to be a failure of that truth. It has to be measurable, right? Today our society doesn't want to measure anything, doesn't want to judge anything. Therefore, there's nothing really wrong. Good is evil and evil is good. And the ones that are wrong and the ones that are unloving are the ones that make an objective judgment upon what is evil and what is good. And that's why we're called an amoral society. Once we pass the 2000s, that's what we entered into. There's no, everything's great. Everything's great. The judgment of Israel is placed alongside with the Gentiles. Again, um, they despised the law. They followed their lies in chapter 2, verse 4. They, um, um, they sold the poor. They oppressed the poor. They, um, they were perverted in their sexual practices. A father, a son would uh, go into the same girl. Um, just, but you look at our nation today, you look at, at the filth that's around us today that's available and everything else. You look at, the, at, at our children, um, junior high school uh, kids having sex in, in, in the restrooms. You, you may not know about this, okay? Or even in elementary school, okay? And, and in some schools, teachers know this. All right. I hope you don't. You're not an ostrich with your head in the sand. <laughs> the corruption that's going on, kind of pushed on by the educators in in many ways. It began way back in the seventies. You know, you 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 could take a girl out of school and take her to get an abortion without parents' permission, but you couldn't. She couldn't get her ears pierced without a note from mom. And it began that way, and it just kept progressing. And now the state has taken all control of, of the youth, where even they turn the children against the parents, right? And they indoctrinate them, right? Socialist Marxism. It's real simple. They were giving wine to the Nazareth in chapter 2, 11, and 12, corrupting them. Don't prophesy. Corrupting the good to become evil. So God was going to judge his people. He wasn't going to make any, any if or but about it for their lack of morality, for their evil practices, for their idolatry, for their spiritual apostasy, for their refusal to acknowledge their sin and refusal to repent, for the refusal to respond by the chastening of the Lord, um, uh, for hating the righteous, for abhorring that which is good, and for oppressing the poor, stealing from them. Um, withholding justice from them, all of this through the chapters, their corrupt worship, their um, confidence and trust in their money and their, their sanctuaries and their cities and their ivory um, beds, and, and they stretch themselves out as a cess, which is a euphemism for their sexual practices and just their a moral society. Hey, we're free. I feel, what's the, what's the phrase they use today? I, I feel comfortable in my skin. Just what, three weeks ago you had all these naked chicks over here on, the, on um, Times Square with just paint on them? Well, what, what do you think is going to happen? Somebody's going to want to touch the merchandise sooner or later. Somebody's going to do something. Then how can you Accuse them of doing something evil if you're provoking them through evil. 
You see, everything gets, gets nullified. Everything gets neutralized. Amos was a loving intercessor, as we see in chapter 7, 5, and 6. But it did no good. But God says in the future, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to restore Israel, chapter 9, verse 11 through 15. And so here again, we have the subject of God's uh, um, future plan of Israel. So we reject um, replacement theology. The church is not Israel. Israel is Israel. The remnant will be saved. God will deal with Israel once again. Romans 9, 10, and 11. Uh, Revelation uh, 12, 6. Israel flees to the wilderness. The remnant, the Spirit of God, will be poured upon them. Ezekiel 37. Very, very clear. He will judge according to his word. No one will get away. Not then, not now. You have four wars, woes declared to them. You have it in chapter 5, verse 18. You have the other one in Amos 6, 1. You have one in Amos 6, 3 through 4. And then, um, you know, just whoa, whoa. It doesn't mean he's riding a horse. It means judgment. Judgment. You as a parent know that you warn your child over and over and over again. And there comes a place where you say, okay, this is it. Now, we as parents, because we're tied emotionally, sometimes we go a little further than we should. But God never goes further than he should, and God never goes short of what he should. God is exactly just. There's never any mistake on his judgments. And so, they were to lament over their situation as a fallen virgin in chapter 5, verse 1. They would be judged by the Lord, the captain of the armies of heaven, in 6, 8. They had rejected God, his word, through the prophet Amos in chapter 7, verse 12. And all of their sins were contrary, a sharp contrast to the blessings that God wanted to give in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Well, God says, if you do this, I will bless you. But if you do this, I will curse you. And they always go back to those three chapters. All the minor prophets, all the major prophets, whenever God sends them, compare it to those three chapters. Always. In fact, when the dedication of the temple, Solomon prayed a lot of those things. Okay? If they repent from their sin, they look towards this place and they pray, forgive them. And he makes that whole petition. And God is going to judge, um, but ultimately restore Israel. Chapter 7 through 9 gives us a very clear picture of that. Um, you have the six visions, uh, the locust devouring thing in 7, verse 1 through 3. You have um, the devastation of fire in chapter 7, 4 through 6. God's judgment is sure. And the vision of the plumb line in 7, 7 through 9, again, the plumb line is to give you a standard and to see where you are in regards to that standard. And God's standard is always very clear, very objective, and it's very um, much in relationship to holiness. And the vision of the summer fruits there in chapter 8, 1 through 14, uh, in the Hebrew, as we stated this morning, there's a pun on words there. Uh, your summer is here and gone, and they're still not saved. Why aren't you? I've sent the prophets. They've proclaimed it. They've called out your sin, but you still haven't repented. And what is there left? Nothing but judgment. 
Prepare to meet your God. In chapter 9, 1 through 10, you have the vision of destruction of Israel. And God stands at the altar. Escape is futile. Then the ultimate restoration in chapter 9, verse 11 through 15, the last vision. And so God will restore Israel. God is faithful, the remnant. But God is not permissive. God is not blind. God is not uh, compromising. But he gives us all the warnings. Now, the book of Amos, let me just um, give you a very simple outline. Okay? In chapter 1 and 2, you have a very, a, a, a very clear pattern. You have the in- introduction to the prophet, the place and the kings, the events, and the nature of the prophet there in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, you have the judgment of Damascus. In chapter 1, 6 through 8, the judgment of Gaza. 9 and 10, the judgment of Tyre. 11 and 12, the judgment of Edom. 13 through 15, the judgment of Ammon. Chapter 2, 1 through 3, the judgment of Moab. 4 through 5, you have the judgment of Judah. And then 6 through 16, you have the judgment of Israel. Those are the judgments in those two chapters. Protection and provision of God. It's very clear, chapter 2, 9 through 11. Preservance of Israel. God preserves her. Chapter 2, verse 12. The promise of judgment. Chapter 2, 13 through 16. So God is declaring some absolutes here that he holds them responsible for. In chapter 3 through 4, you have the words of the Lord. Chapter 3, 1 through 8, you have the proclamation to Israel. 3, 9 through 12, you have the proclamation to Assyria and Egypt. In chapter 3, 13 through 15, the proclamation of the house of Jacob. Chapter 4, 1 through 3, the proclamation of their social injustice. Chapter 4, verse 4 through 5, the proclamation of their spiritual apostasy. Chapter 4, verse 6 through 11, the proclamation of their refusal to repent. Chapter 4, 12 through 13, the proclamation of their judgment by God. Then you have the lamentation and warnings of the Lord in 5 through 6. 5, verse 1 and 2, the lamentation regarding their fall. 5, 3, lamentation regarding their future. 4 through 5 of chapter 5, the lamentation regarding their folly. Chapter 5, 6 through 7, the lamentation regarding their fault. Verse 8 9, lamentation regarding their frailty. 10 through 15, the lamentation regarding their falsehood. 16 through 17, the lamentation regarding their fate. And 18 through 20, the warning regarding the day of the Lord. It wasn't going to be a happy day if you had not repented. And 21 through 25, the warning regarding their feast. God abhorred their feast. 6 through 1 through 3, you have the warning regarding their ease and false security. 6, verse 4 through 6, you have their warning regarding their prosperity and wealth. 6, 7 through 14, the warning regarding their captivity. Then from 7... To eight, you have the revelation of the Lord. Listen carefully. Seven, one through three, the judgment of locusts. Four through six, the judgment of fire. Seven through nine, the judgment of the plumb line. 
10 through 13, the judgment against Amos. Seven, uh, chapter 7, 14 through 17, you have the judgment of Amaziah. And then you have 8, 1 through 3, the end of Israel. 4 through 8, the end of their perse- per- perseverance. And then 9 through 10, the end of his bitterness. It's bitter. When there's no repentance and judgment comes and there's nothing left, there's the consequences. You see, Satan always wants to magnify the benefit for your life through sin, but he wants to minimize the consequences. He told Eve, ah, you won't surely die. God knows that the day you eat, you'll become just like him. Minimizing the consequences, maximizing the benefit. But when you cross that line, it's just the reverse. Just the reverse. Last chapter, verse 9, verse 1 through 4. You see the faithfulness of the Lord to his searching out for judgment. And 5 through 6, his authority and power as creator. And 7 through 10, to his righteous judging, sparing the remnant. His righteousness. And then 11 and 12 to his covenant to David. And 13 through 15 to his blessing of Israel. Wow. What a prophet. A regular country bumpkin. Sheep breeder. Fruit picker. God says, I want to use you. So we qualify. Make sure that you are a light. Make sure that you are salt wherever God sends you. And especially if your parents, your children are looking at you. And they are listening to you. They are watching you like a hawk. Because listen, they believe you're spiritual. Don't disappoint them. They believe you are the greatest Christian in the world. Make sure you show them that you are. Because they're looking for a hero. And you know what? You're their hero right now. You want to make sure you point them to Christ. Father, we thank you for your grace and your love, your goodness. Deal with our hearts. And we thank you for your goodness, Lord. We thank you for Amos and his book. And we pray as we move through it, Lord, that you would just continue to teach us. Thank you for every person here tonight. Lord, I lift them to you. Father, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, or maybe over the internet, that you would speak to their hearts, Lord, about your love and your care for them, that they repent and be forgiven by your grace, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Only you can make that decision. No one can make it for you. You see yourself as a sinner under the wrath of God. That's the grace of God. If you see that Jesus and you believe that Jesus is God who became man and died for your sins. He made that payment for your sin as that substitute. Then that's the grace of God. If you desire to call upon his name, that's the grace of God. But you must do it. He won't do it for you. So if you want to accept him, you want to be born again, this is your prayer to the Lord. Not to us, but to the Lord.
And He's going to forgive you for all your sins. Cast them as far as east as the west, burying them in the deepest ocean, and make you His child by grace through faith. This is your prayer to Him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept your son as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen.